You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Berceau, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskill and presented by the National Lipid Association. Joining me today is Dr. James Stein, Director of Preventive Cardiology Program at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and a professor within the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. And we're going to discuss the relationship of carotid IMT and cardiovascular disease and testing IMTs. Dr. Stein, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Could you start out a little by educating our audience as to what exactly is IMT? Sure. IMT stands for intima media thickness, and it refers to the thickness of the walls of the carotid arteries. Measuring carotid IMT has been used for two to three decades now as a research tool, but in the past five or six years has really come into play as a clinical test that can be used to help with risk stratification. All right. So there's a lot of things out there that say that they can help with risk stratification. For years, we've used Framingham. There's blood tests and new biomarkers always coming out saying that they are a better predictive model. And so the question is, how do we determine whether this new model predicts risk more accurately than existing models and whether or not the risks that is predicted for an individual is actually different enough to warrant a change in how we treat patients? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It seems like every month a new journal comes out with yet another great biomarker that's going to make cardiovascular risk prediction better or easier than what we had before. I think the first point for the listeners to understand is that traditional risk factors actually do a very good job, and it's very rare for a patient to develop heart disease in the absence of smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, family history, aging, etc. The problem, though, is that with our traditional risk factors, even when you put them in the traditional Framingham risk model, is that these models do well at predicting risk in populations of people, but they start to fall short when applied to individual patients. So if I put my patient's risk factors into the Framingham risk model and it comes out at 6% risk over 10 years, the patient oftentimes is concerned, well, am I in that 6% or am I in that 94%? And without having better tools, they oftentimes walk away from their office visit with their physician really unclear about whether or not they're at high risk, low risk, or intermediate risk. So let's do a real-life example of, say, someone who's come to see you recently and you were deciding whether or not they were at a moderate or high risk and how IMT actually helped you reclassify. What I would do with a patient is go ahead and look at their risk factors, do the Framingham risk score, but if they end up in what I consider to be an intermediate range between 6 and 20% over the next 10 years, then I think getting additional information can be very useful. And you could get a biomarker such as C-reactive protein or advanced lipoprotein testing, or you could get an imaging test that is, in my opinion, more personal because it looks right at their arteries. And in this circumstance, I would probably get a carotid intima media thickness ultrasound scan. Now, if you do an IMT, what numbers do you use as normal, abnormal, and what is the basis for using those? You know, where did you get those numbers from? The basis for determining if a carotid IMT value is normal or abnormal comes from several large population-based studies that have been done over the past two decades, cardiovascular health study, ERIC, MESA, et cetera, that really defines for whites, for blacks, for males, for females, and for certain ethnic subgroups what normal values are. And according to the American Society of Echocardiography consensus statement on clinical use of carotid IMT, we use the 75th percentile as a cut point, similar to what we do with coronary calcium scoring. So we say if a patient is above the 75th percentile for their carotid IMT, it's in their age, sex, and race, they're at increased risk. And in the population-based studies, 
having an IMT above the 75th percentile corresponds to a relative risk for a cardiovascular event of about two to three-fold increase. Now, if you do a IMT on someone and you see a thickened IMT, let's say it's 0.9 millimeters, but you see no plaque present, what do you say to the patient? Do you say you've got the beginnings of plaque, you've got early plaque, you've got, I mean, how do you couch it? So there's a couple of points to be made. First is that an absolute IMT value, such as 0.9 millimeters, doesn't mean anything in and of itself. You really have to look at the patient's age, sex, and race. A value of, of 0.9 can be high for a person, depending on their age and sex, or it could be normal. But let's say that the patient does have an area of, of focal wall thickening, but they don't have a plaque. What I tell them is that they're at increased risk because they have the early stages of arterial injury that lead to plaque formation. On the other hand, if a patient has a discrete plaque in their arteries, the risk is increased. In fact, the risk of having a carotid plaque is somewhat higher than having increased IMT, relative risk there being about two and a half to three and a half fold. Then I use that to start the discussion about risk interventions such as aspirin, lipid-lowering therapy, blood pressure lowering. The next logical question is when someone sees that they have either plaque or thickened IMT is, well, doctor, does that mean that my coronaries have the same or is it not a one-to-one correlation? That's a really good question. There is a very strong correlation between the degree of wall thickening and plaque burden in the carotid arteries and in the coronary arteries. It's not precise. It's not a correlation of 1.0, but the correlation between the carotid arteries and the coronaries is pretty much the same as between any two coronary arteries. So it gives us a window. It gives us some insight into what's going on in the coronary arteries, but they're not exactly the same. And as a result, carotid IMT actually is a slightly better predictor of stroke than of coronary artery disease, whereas a test like coronary calcium screening does a little better job with coronary disease, but doesn't tell you as much about the carotids. And you, you mentioned it's a window, and it's a nice window because it's not a radioactive window. There's no radiation involved. Yeah, that perhaps is its biggest advantage, is that it's completely non-invasive. So we don't have to put any needles in anyone, they don't need any dye, they don't need beta blockers, and we don't give them any radiation. And when you're in the business of preventing disease, the last thing you want to do is create disease, even if it's a very small risk. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and I'm talking today with Dr. James Stein, Director of Preventive Cardiology Program at the University of Wisconsin Hospital, and we're talking about carotid IMT scores and what they mean. Dr. Stein, do you ever continue on, let's say you get an IMT on someone who you're suspicious of having disease and it's normal, will you ever look at another arterial bed, perhaps by getting a a coronary calcium scan. I really don't think that carotid IMTs and coronary calcium scans should be exclusive of each other. For many patients, they're going to give the same information. I think for white men who are older, the calcium score gives a little bit more strong information, whereas the IMT is really useful in those young people, especially women and African-Americans who are more likely to have calcium scores of zero. If I really need to know whether or not someone has subclinical atherosclerosis, I I do start with a carotid ultrasound looking for plaque, looking for wall thickening. If I don't see it in the carotids, I think a calcium score would be reasonable, but only if the patient was over 55 or 60 years of age. If, If they're young and they don't have anything in their carotids, the likelihood of them having calcified plaque in their coronaries is really, really low. Well, let's say you have a 40 year old woman who has a thickened IMT. She has normal lipids. She has a normal HSCRP. Would you, by just the presence of a thickened IMT, would you put her in a high-risk category? I would put her in an increased risk category. I would say to her that her relative risk is increased by two to three-fold, and I would look really carefully at her family history and, and her blood markers to see why it might be that she's developed 
this wall thickening, there has to have been a reason why you as a clinician felt that she needed to have her walls looked at. I wouldn't go as far as to scare her and tell her that she's sitting on a huge amount of coronary artery disease and she's about to have a heart attack or stroke, but I'd use it as a real wake-up call for being aggressive about lifestyle interventions. And if we find anything wrong with her lipoproteins, lipid-lowering therapy as well. What do you see as advantages of doing this test besides the lack of radiation? One of the real advantages to this test is that it, it can be done in an office setting. So to do a calcium scan requires a CT scanner, which obviously can't be placed in someone's office. This can be done on an ultrasound machine, and there's been a, a huge proliferation in the past couple of years of inexpensive but high-quality ultrasound machines that can now be in offices. And I actually think that the future of this test is going to be moving it into an office practice where a patient comes in and a well-trained healthcare professional, it could be the doctor, but it also could be a nurse, for example, does a limited carotid IMT scan looking at the common carotid arteries, looking for plaque, and then can present that information to the physician and patient right at the time of that visit where you're talking about lipids and blood pressure. Okay, so it's available and it's inexpensive, but who's going to pay for it? Yeah, that's always a challenge. So currently, very few people pay for the test. It's not paid for by, by Medicare or Medicaid. There are local pockets throughout the United States where physicians or healthcare plans have made deals with local care providers, local insurers, usually HMOs, to cover it for appropriately selected patients. But there's a very high hurdle for imaging tests to overcome to get coverage from Medicare and from most insurance providers. You have to not only show that you're accurate at predicting risk, but you have to take that next step and show that with this risk information in hand, doctors act and patients do better. And I think we're a long way off from crossing that threshold with carotid ultrasound as well as many other cardiac imaging tests. With IMT, can we actually predict risk more accurately than existing models? Can we prove that to an insurance company? That can be proven to an insurance company. We've got statistical data, both in the form of multivariate models that show independent predictive values. We've got area under the receiver operator characteristic curves that shift, although it modestly, that metric does shift, which means people get reclassified. We even have data that doctors respond to IMT values and plaque presence, carotid plaque presence, with interventions that reduce risk. So we've got data that when there's an abnormal carotid ultrasound, doctors are more likely to prescribe aspirin, more likely to prescribe lipid-lowering therapy. But what we don't have is that next step that, in the end, people do better. So we don't have good outcome data yet. Yeah, we don't have good outcome data. But I, I would add that we don't have good outcome data for the vast majority of tests that we do in cardiology. We don't have good outcome data for calcium screening and for many of the office-based measurements that we do. But we do have, if I understand you correctly, we do have outcome data showing that if you show someone that they've got a giant hunk of plaque sitting in their carotid, they're more likely to be compliant. Well, we've got good data that if you show a doctor that their patient has a big hunk of calcium, a big plaque or IMT, that they're more likely to make interventions. With, with patients, the story is much more complicated and it's less consistent across studies. In general, it looks like patients understand what the results mean and they report increased motivation for certain lifestyle behaviors. In some studies, they, they appear to be more likely to take their medication, but I think that's another area that needs more research. It's just not consistent across the studies. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the concept of number needed to treat, but I don't know if you're familiar with the number needed to screen. Do you think that this is a good screening test and it would help and pay for itself? My gut feeling is yes, because it satisfies several of the criteria for a screening test. It's, it's safe, it's non-invasive, it accurately identifies the disease that you're looking for. When you identify the disease, there are interventions that are proven to both reduce the presence of this marker, so lipid-lowering, blood pressure-lowering, reduce IMT, but also reduce events. 
And we also have a good understanding of what segment of the population is most likely to benefit by screening, and that's the intermediate risk group of people in whom the intervention, i.e. taking a picture, can raise the risk level to a zone where intervention is likely to lead to a cost-effective reduction in events. And we also have a good understanding of what segment of the population is most likely to benefit by screening, and that's the intermediate risk group of people in whom the intervention, i.e. taking a picture, can raise the risk level to a zone where intervention is likely to lead to a cost-effective reduction in events. It's just that this requires a lot of dots to be connected from different places, a lot of different studies. There's not one big study where they took 5,000 people, randomized half to standard care and half to get IMT-guided care and showed that the people that received IMT-guided care did better. That study hasn't been done. I don't think it's in the workings right now either. Are you currently involved in any IMT studies? Oh, yeah, we're involved in several IMT studies. Most of them are are, are population-based, but we also are involved in in clinical trials of cholesterol-lowering drugs as well as some new anti-atherosclerotic agents. The one that I'm most excited about, though, is actually an office-based screening study. We've we've got uh, 350 patients who are at five community-based office practices where we took the docs and the nurses and taught them to do IMT scans right in the office with a handheld ultrasound machine and are now looking at what the docs do in response to the results, what the patients do, and we have some short-term outcomes looking at how well people get to goal, um, how often people take their pills, et cetera. Besides the financial costs, are there any other barriers? You said it's relatively easy to train someone of intelligence to do this test. The first barrier is, of course, the training. And I I think like any other medical test, if you get people who are intelligent enough and interested enough to follow a protocol and do it well, it can be taught. Just take some training and then, of course, continued emphasis on quality and adherence to the protocol. There is another barrier, however, which has to do with um, adventitious findings. So when you start looking in the carotid arteries, you start seeing other things. Thyroid nodules, that's the most common thing that we see. And thyroid nodules are, depending on the study you look at, found in 6 to 13% of the population, depending on how you screen the carotids. And that can create some um, unnecessary worry when you see cysts in nodules. On the other hand, every once in a while, we pick up a nodule that turns out to be cancerous. Right. Well, anytime we do any sort of screening test, we find incidental lomas. Excellent. James Stein, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Dr. James Stein was our guest. He's Director of Preventive Cardiology Program at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and a professor within the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. And we were talking today about the relationship of carotid IMT scores and cardiovascular disease. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org. 